When I was in high school, some friends of mine and I had a running gag. Uh, when a new movie would come out and there'd be a poster up, uh, we would look at the blurbs that they'd give, you know, best picture of the year, an exciting thriller or whatever it was, and then re reuse this quote in a new context to say something different. So, for instance, uh, if a movie poster read, a must-see, we would say that the review probably said something like this. Columbia Pictures was hoping for a must-see, but this movie's a total dud. Or if it said Oscar-worthy performance, uh, we would change it to Clint Eastwood falls far short of an Oscar-worthy performance in this one, etc. And uh, the joke is that, of course, uh, reviews can say one thing and publicists will call whatever they want from that context and put it in a new context and it means something different. So getting the right context is always important for interpreting anything. This morning's gospel offers us an opportunity to invoke an important principle for interpreting the scriptures. That principle runs something like this. We must interpret each passage with reference to the rest of scripture and that of tradition. So the proper context for interpreting the scriptures are the scripture themselves and tradition. So when our Lord offers us a very challenging teaching that we must hate our parents and our own lives, we must first look at how this fits within this context. Uh, we see something similar uh, when uh, our Lord says, call no man on earth father, for example. Uh, we can take this in one context and say that priests should not use this uh, title. But then Paul himself in his letter today says that he's Onesimus' father. And so Paul seems to contradict this. So how do we understand this? Well, Paul is a kind of foster father representative of the new life that Onesimus has obtained in baptism and therefore a, a representative of the true father. And this is what a priest is meant to be in our tradition as well. But let's go back to the gospel that our Lord could not have intended this idea of hating parents to be taken strictly literally is demonstrated by his insistence uh, in a couple chapters further on in Luke that eternal life is gained by obeying the commandments of God. And he even quotes one of the commandments as honor your father and your mother. But more than that, the whole of the New Testament is about the new commandment of love. And we extend this love even to enemies. And can it be that we are to love our enemies and hate our parents? You know, this doesn't really make any sense. So we have to search a little more carefully. A few notes about this. The passage begins with a little throwaway comment, uh, except that in Luke and in the Gospels there are no such things. A great crowd was gathered around Jesus. Luke often notes when there are these big crowds, and uh, we see that in the Gospels, Jesus teaches his apostles one thing and then the crowds another thing. And our Lord is clearly concerned, and, and Luke reflects this, that the early Christians could be seduced by their own apparent success at times. So Luke, for instance, gives us the story uh, of the great praise spoken to Jesus in his hometown at the beginning of his ministry, and it quickly turns to a murderous rage when Jesus refuses to cater his message to the expectations of his hearers, even though they're his, uh, presumably, the people he grew up with, you know. This is important to realize because many modern images of Christ 
depict him as a great humanitarian. And in a, in a strict sense, if we understand humanitarianism correctly, he is, of course. But we see someone who goes about helping the sick and the poor. He did this, and this is important. But it's also important to notice when he pulls back from this activity. When everything seems to be going just right, Jesus mysteriously disappears. So when he's at the house of Simon's mother-in-law, everybody from the whole town shows up and he disappears. He goes out into the wilderness to pray. And when his apostles come and say, hey, everybody's looking for you. Aren't you going to, this is great. You know, what could be better? Obviously things are going well. And the Lord says, no, I have to go somewhere else. Why? Because I have to preach the kingdom of God. And for whatever reason, this particular instance is, is no longer the right one. He has to go somewhere else to preach the kingdom. Or when Peter makes the connection that Jesus is the Son of God, the expected Messiah, the Lord immediately counsels him, and in strong words, don't get this wrong, I'm a suffering Messiah. We have to understand what kind of Messiah we're talking about. We can't get carried away with thinking, oh great, the kingdom of God, here it comes, everything's roses from here on out. And the importance of all of this that I've already hinted at in talking about Paul's relationship with Onesimus is that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, the things that seem to make one happy in this world are to be treated with great caution, uh, if not renounced outright, if we want to be disciples of him whose kingdom is not of this world. This is not an easy teaching, and that's why our Lord has to use some pretty strong phraseology at times. Uh, a multitude gathered around the Lord hoping for a miracle of the multiplication of loaves or a spectacular exorcism of demons, uh, all these kinds of exciting things. If that's us, we risk being very disappointed. <laughs> but this is not at all a teaching, it's important to stress, that is simply negative about things we have to renounce that we might otherwise like. Uh, what we need to remember is what is promised to disciples of Christ. And then we might understand why even a word as strong as hate is used to contrast this passing world with the eternal life that we receive in baptism. We have in our sanctuary a large icon of Christ, and it has a double meaning. It depicts both the ascension and the return in glory of our Lord, the angels who appeared to the apostles in the Ascension uh, predicted that he would return in the same way that he left. <clears throat> I want to focus on the Ascension part uh, for now. The Ascension is the mystery of the opening up of heaven. It's the revelation. We, we get to see into heaven. Christ goes there to lead us there, though we need to see with the eyes of faith. It is the inauguration of Christ's reign, of the new kingdom this everlasting kingdom that's not of this world. It's the heavenly kingdom. This ascension, though, takes place in Christ's human nature. And then in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he begins the work of gathering everything to himself, beginning with the saints, and that includes us. And when we gather together at Mass and stand before that icon, we are gathering as this kingdom in this world, breaking in, this new kingdom that's coming to uh, take over from the old kingdom. And when the priest at the beginning of Mass walks up from 
the assembly, into the sanctuary, to the altar, we see our human nature being drawn upward toward Christ. And with the eyes of faith, we should be turning our minds all throughout Mass to these heavenly mysteries, to these heavenly realities, away from earthly sorrows and earthly concerns and distractions. We have the opportunity in the Eucharist itself of having a foretaste of the joy and peace of that kingdom. Uh, This is a joy and peace of an utterly different, greater kind than any joy and peace in this world, which are at best always provisional. And when we are called upon to carry the good news of the kingdom we've experienced here out back into the world, uh, it is this radical break, this radical newness uh, that we are to communicate, not a patching up of, of something old, not a sewing on of a new patch on an old wineskin. Because of our, our tendency to get attached to the things of the world that's passing away, we need a stern warning not to confuse these two things, not to confuse the life of Christ with the life of the old Adam. So we must indeed hate that old life, as our Lord says. But it's only in the fullest context of the liturgy that this becomes clear. And so let us examine ourselves and see if we are ready to live this new life of Christ as it is offered to us in the Eucharist we are to receive.